I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <coughs> Ready Player One. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid. My mom, too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Who is this Parzival, and how the hell is he winning? Find him. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. The Oasis. The world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Like many of you, I only came here to escape. But I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. Our guest tonight is Victoria Luna B. Grieve, a person who has repeatedly improved our show and just plain made us better people. Hello, Victoria. Oh, goodness. Uh, that, that was much... That was a very nice introduction, Alex. Thank you. I was going for accuracy, <laughs> but uh, yeah. You're well, I, I I appreciate the sentiment because I always enjoy coming on here and having just a jolly conversation with you. And I think today is going to be a, a, a pretty good one. Yes. Let's have a jolly holiday, Mary Poppins, 1964. I um, understood that reference. <laughs> on this episode, we will be talking about the 2018 film by Steven Spielberg and at least dallying with the 2011 source novel written by Ernest Cline. And full disclosure, I have not to date been able to get through the whole book after multiple attempts. It is one of the most irritating pieces of prose I have ever encountered. And if I'm entirely honest, spending years writing what I hope are books with meaning and engaging characters that reflect the world as I see and the world that I would like to see through the prism of my own experience and the strengths and weaknesses that make my writing what it is, to see this grinning neckbeard warmly praised by one of my favourite directors of all time on the extras of this Blu-ray for writing this 
Well, it quite takes my breath away, like that song by Berlin from the movie Top Gun 1986. I'm burning with envy over the good fortune of a man widely regarded as being a poor writer, and that is unseemly and immature, and I should grow out of it sometime. He wrote a book that was little more than a laundry list of references, each providing dopamine hits for a certain type of nerd, and that was adapted into a movie that does something similar in a more palatable way for a wider audience. In real life, Ernest Klein drives a DeLorean with a Ghostbusters logo on the side. And that is such a perfect summation of his work that I don't think we necessarily need to slog through the entire book to attempt to find meaning, though you can find recordings and readings from certain chapters on our Patreon. I'd heard of Halliday, of course. Everyone had. He was the video game designer responsible for creating The Oasis, a massively multiplayer online game that had gradually evolved into the globally networked virtual reality most of humanity now used on a daily basis. The unprecedented success of The Oasis had made Halliday one of the wealthiest people in the world. At first, I couldn't understand why the media was making such a big deal of the billionaire's death. After all, the people of planet Earth had other concerns. The ongoing energy crisis, catastrophic climate change, widespread famine, poverty and disease, half a dozen wars, you know, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, Ghostbusters 1984. One thing is for sure, we cannot make our point by gatekeeping. I could snidely point out that the bit where Wade employs the holy hand grenade of Antioch is a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but that the filmmakers, and bear in mind Klein, who knows that whole 1975 film word for word, just like his self-insert avatar, was a producer and should have known that before Wade throws it, he must count up to three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out, and after having counted to three, then lobbest thy holy hand grenade towards thy foe, who, being naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. Instead, he just chucks it, and three seconds after the pin is pulled, it explodes. We cannot claim nerd superiority for this useless trivia. We cannot call out inauthenticity. We cannot gatekeep. That would be a spectacular own goal. And now that you know the above, I can say that there are many other instances throughout the film and the book because the references in this movie are all skin deep. But there has to be more that we can talk about than just the failings in specificity. Let us begin by crafting you. Excuse me, my voice is fucked because I've been ill for the past couple of weeks. It wasn't the coronavirus. This was recorded at the end of 2019. Or maybe it was the coronavirus, shit. By crafting you an average passage of Klein's book. And to make this interesting, rather than... (laughs) Interesting. Rather than reading verbatim, I'm going to emulate the style of Klein, utilising the time-honoured, popular in the 80s, Game of Mad Libs. Going to ask Victoria and Sharon to fill in the nouns and we will get a scene going for you. Oh, no. Yeah. So, Sharon, uh, away you go, if you would uh, read this one to the people at home. Okay. The hottest nightclub in town was named the Proton Pack, and I wanted to make sure I made a big splash tonight. I pulled up to the entrance driving my mystery machine, which I had modified with a turbo booster shaped like Cubit. I was wearing the exact same outfit as Sailor Moon, plus the hat of Teen Witch and the boots of Elliot from E.T., 
I approached the velvet rope and the bouncer who was wearing the skin of Assassin from Creed. (laughs) What's the password, he croaked. I threw my thumbs up and quipped loudly, where we're going, we don't need roads. He high-fived me and I swaggered into the club. They were playing the title screen tune from the soundtrack of Tank Tracks and everyone was dancing hard. I saw Jem from Jem and the Holograms playing a ZX Spectrum joystick like maracas. Did it have a joystick? No. Okay. I saw a doll dressed as the concept of mascot platformers. I saw a My Best Friend doll dancing by himself like Billy Idol herself. I saw Biff Tannen doing the time warp with cartoon Beetlejuice. I put my sword of power from off of He-Man on the bar and nodded to the bartender who was dressed like Rick Moranis. Get an ice-cold surge in a glass shaped like George from Rampage. Then a girl dressed as Mayan Bialik sauntered up. I recited every single line from the Monster Squad and by the end of those 95 minutes she was hooked. The music switched to the chicken song and she asked me to dance. (laughs) Skin yourself to speak a rapper ho, climb inside a dog, and behead an Eskimo, eat a Renault Ford, wear salami in your ears, casserole your grand, disembowel yourself with spears. Oh dear, that's horribly oh, appropriate. Ah, tell me that that is not how Ernest Klein wrote his book. I, I can't. <sighs> Maybe he mad-libbed himself. So this show is divided into three sections. The nonsensical is where we talk about how, with a lack of understanding of how technology, people, history, culture, or the world in general works, Ready Player One crafted a future that makes very little sense. That's just the fun, head-scratchy stuff, not even really nitpicks, because if you think hard at all, this story breaks apart like an alien pod getting shot at by an M41A pulse rifle of the kind Artemis briefly wields in this film from Aliens 1986. Part two is the bad, the rotten implications of this thing, at least on paper. Once again, I'm going to approach Spielberg himself in good faith and consider that here he was just having fun, like a big kid. And finally, we will acknowledge the good. There has to be some, surely. Victoria, you say you've actually read this book. Do you you have anything to add before we sort of delve in here? Kind of, because I have a very... Let's go with singular perspective, because when I read this book, it was when the book came out. And at the time, I was certainly expressing and living my life as a shitty pop culture obsessed white boy. And uh, the book was extremely in my wheelhouse in that moment. It was a very strange moment in time where I read through the whole book and, you know, your eyes kind of glaze over from the pages and pages and pages of just lists of things. But the but the corner, like the core of it, I ended up just kind of walking away from it, just being like, eh, that was fine. It was a book, like had a couple of funny things now on revisiting with you know 2019 eyes and with all of my lived experience and and everything boy is it bad it's it's just poorly written with a rotten core because the the conceit of holiday in the book like he did all this stuff so in like for a really selfish reason so okay actually yeah, well, like, there are people listening who don't know the concept of this film Oh and have steered clear. So you're going to have to synopsize Fine. and say how it works in the book and if it was any different in the film. So in the book, it is the story of a world that has been hit by a lot of disasters, a lot of societal collapse, but has 
found kind of new life, in a sense, in a virtual world created by uh, Holiday, who is this video game creator obsessed with the 80s that he grew up in, and he created the Oasis. Or, as Wikipedia tells me, the ontologically anthropocentric sensory immersive simulation, which doesn't add anything knowing that the Oasis stands for something, but it's there on Wikipedia. So, five years later, uh, after Holiday's death, where he announced that if you find his Easter egg that he hid in the world, that you get to, by going through three gateways after having claimed three keys, you can, you will basically earn the right and all of the stocks for Gregarious Games and for the Oasis and be unfathomably rich and powerful. And everybody grew obsessed with this search for Holiday's egg, and in doing so, sort of arrested societal development in a pop culture sense to become obsessed with the 80s and became very backward looking. Uh, with everybody obsessed with the online world and the search for the egg for power and money, the real life started to, quote unquote, real life started to degrade even more to the point where we get to in the when the book picks up. It's five years following Holiday's death. Wade Watts is our main character. He lives in the stacks, which is a very strange concept where uh, mobile homes are stacked on top of each other. And it's kind of half junkyard, half apartment complex. And everybody is super, is still obsessed with the Oasis, but a lot of the uh, fervor in hunting for the egg has died down because five years has passed and nobody's made any progress. <clears throat> they talk briefly about how in the Oasis, anybody can get a decent education by going to the one planet where, uh, because... All of the different areas in the Oasis are literal planets, which is kind of a nice reference to the fact that in VR game design, we call it designing worlds or making worlds. And in this case, it's just very, very literal, which is uh, a thing. And uh, Wade Watts is young enough that he's, I think, just out of school at this point <clears throat> and uh, stumbles across the first key. Uh, the location of the first key, which happens to be on the school planet, and it's a recreation of the Tomb of Horror, which is an old Dungeons and Dragons module that is like un unfathomably difficult. And he stumbles has to upon go... is quite important because Wade <clears throat> kind of stumbles upon stuff a lot in this book, and from the sounds yes. of it, a lot of the actual setup and payoff is, oh my god, I've just realised I, I can get the key by being really, really good at Zork. Luckily, guess what I did for the past summer? I was playing yeah. a lot of Zork, because I know that Halliday's 58th favorite game was Zork. Yeah, because Wade has become like kind of a loner and obsessed with Holiday in much the same way that Holiday was kind of a loner and was obsessed with his own past. So Wade is sort of, in the book, certainly walking down uh, Holiday's footsteps. And in doing so stumbles across but also has reason to be in a section where he finds this recreation of the tomb of horrors gets through the tomb of horrors because he knows all the tricks and traps and gets to the middle where the the demi lich that is at the center of the tomb of horrors uh challenges him to a game of joust and he wins that and gets the key then there's like a whole thing where he has to find the gate and i literally remember nothing about that and uh then they go to the second key, and it's hidden in war games for just convoluted reasons. Not just war you, you, games, the, the Matthew Broderick film from 1986, war games. 
Sure. Uh, and, and he has to actually go in and prove that he knows every line of war games by taking the role of Matthew Broderick in said film. Oh, wait. 1983 <clears throat> war games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, my God. I've just realized the ridiculous inappropriateness of using war games. The only way to win mm-hmm. is to not play. Yeah. 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 <gasps> uh, uh, the whole thing with Artemis, like, he, he falls for this girl real hard, and she immediately goes from a character in the book to just kind of being, like, a second to, um, what's his name, Wade. Uh, Wade ends up getting kidnapped by the Sixers and put into one of the... Hang on, who are the Sixers? Uh, Have you said who the Sixers are? The Sixers are the bad guys. There's kind of the faceless army of goons run by IOI, which yeah, is this More big, like Sucksaws. Uh, yep. This big rival organization to Gregarious Games. Gregarious Games being the company that runs the Oasis and IOI being the second biggest one. They want to get the egg, especially Sorrento, the, the boss of IOI, uh, so that they can own all the things. And um, <sighs> they have sort of in a very, especially now having seen Sorry to Bother You, in like a real uncomfortable way with the loyalty centers and things, forcing people into doing their menial labor in the Oasis through purchasing debt and forcing them into a kind of slavery. And uh, Wade ends up in one of these loyalty pods. I forget the specific convoluted way, but he does it on purpose so that he can infiltrate it to get something and then the final key ends up being uh I, th- I think in the book it's still adventure the atari 2600 game uh where it's not to beat the game because i should say the last key is a recreation of the atari 2600 with every game made for it and no real instructions and the ioi sends in just they brute force it essentially is what they're trying to do and they just have people playing every game until they fall through the ice there's ice did you mention the ice well the atari 2600 is is on this like ice flow (laughs) underneath a castle surrounded by a moat of lava and they i i don't remember if they actually have the shield thing in the book like they do in the movie but the important part is the the, the people, the, the average people who are not part of IOI end up assaulting the location to try to get to the final key so that uh, Parzival, Wade Watts' avatar, can get to it, finish the thing, get the egg, and save the day and get the girl. And after uh, Sorrento blows everybody up with the biggest bomb ever made in the Oasis... Parzival is suddenly and miraculously not dead because many, 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 many pages before he had arbitrarily played a game of Pac-Man so well that he got a magic artifact quarter that was an extra life just for being the best at Pac-Man. And uh, he comes back to life. He gets the Easter egg in Adventure. He gets the egg at the end. He takes Holiday's, like, position, so to speak, and IOI goes out of business, he gets Artemis and fade to black. Um, and also there are three other characters, H, Dido, and Sho, and they're not really given much uh, to do in the book, but they exist. So I was told that uh, the book has a, a, a heavy subtext of finding a family. Is that the case? 
I think the movie does a much better job of that, but... I was told uh, that the movie does a much worse job of indicating that. I, Am I wrong? I a thousand percent disagree with that statement. <laughs> the, the book... So, the, one of the... the so, in the book, the reason that the five are brought together to meet in real life is because Ogden Morrow shows up to each of their places and says, Hey, I have a fortified mansion in California and all of you can stay there uh, protected from IOI's bullshit so you don't have to worry about being shot in real life and any kind of actual tension will go away for the rest of the book. Good thinking. uh, He selects them on purpose. Yeah, he selects... It's after they get the second key, I believe, and he's just like, okay, these five are not IOI and therefore probably not bad people, and they're uh, following in Holiday's footsteps, and I remember this you know, friend of mine back in the day, and I'm going to do what I can to protect them because I'm unfathomably wealthy because of my uh, previous involvement with the Oasis. And so he, he literally moves them to a compound so that, that is So they can't protected. be hurt in real life. So they can't be hurt that, in real that life. That is a great yeah. idea for ensuring that uh, your only concern is, will Wade win? And of course he will, because he wins everything. Yeah, because he's the best. So, so that's when they all meet in real life. And it feels like they were interacting in the book, in the space of the Oasis. They do some things. They have some conversation. Wade is unbelievably insufferable. Uh, through most of the book. I don't understand how anybody tolerates him. And then uh, Ogden just brings them all to a fortified compound so they can do the thing. And they do the thing. And and then that's that's the end. And, and Wade Watts is given his rightful place in the world, having all of the money and the power that he splits very graciously among the other four people and Ogden, in a sense because they also existed. Also, as you said, he, he does win Artemis at the end. He uh, oh, makes course. his She's way through a... a we, read, we read the final chapter. He makes his way through a maze, and she looks pretty much the same as she does in the game, which is, as he says repeatedly, Rubenesque. And uh, he says, you're beautiful. And she's very shy around him. And he, you know, he gets the girl. You're evil. You know that? I said. She grinned and shook her head. Chaotic neutral, sugar. It's a specific point in the book, if I remember correctly, that Artemis's avatar looks basically just like her, but without the 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 wine stain uh, birthmark that's over her right eye that she's really like self conscious about. Yeah. Um, regarding that, and I would imagine this is probably something that we might actually want to talk about in a bit. Um, but the the fact of the birthmark is reminiscent of a book called Moondial, wherein a girl who lives in Victorian England has a very prominent port wine stain on her face Mm. and constantly covers herself up and is convinced that she is hideous because of it. She's hounded by other kids at night who chase her and scream devil's child. That's the thing. That's why you grasp that she feels ugly and hideous because of this. It's because you see other people terrorising Not something she simply internalised. Absolutely. You're not just meant to assume it as soon as she turns up on screen. One thing that I do think the book does a bit better job of is they, um, the story takes place over a much longer time, 
in the movie they don't really talk about like compressing any of that time where where they're actually like looking for a really long time it seems to all happen very quickly and in the book there are months that pass before major scenes that that they talk about See, that, it's... that does make a little bit more sense because in the film it does come across that once the dam breaks when Parsifal finds the first key, everything else kind of rolls on very quickly. Yeah, yeah. because it's a, an adventure and that's what happens when adventures start. They continue yeah. at a but pace. Really, that just leaves you with the residual wondering of why the hell it took them five years to get going. Mm. Mainly because, and this is one of the first points of contention regarding the nonsensical, I don't think Ernest Cline really understands gamers and how unbelievably experimental and also communicative with each other they are. Reddit exists. Every single gamer would have charted every inch of that race at the beginning of the film. The idea that in five years, with races every single day, nobody has driven backwards is out of control crazy I um so yes and no I I at least appreciate that in the in the movie they put a giant wall right behind them to reinforce like this is not the way to go like if it was just like a normal racing game where it's like a looped track and there's just track behind you of course everybody goes backward but the idea of there just being a big ass wall there I, I don't know. I, I can kind of believe that it, it that it except 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 if there's anything in here referencing any more girl coded eighties stuff, everybody goes. I've seen Labyrinth. You just walk through yeah. the wall. It's not really there. So it is. Imp- I think it's important to note that the race is specifically a construct of the movie rather than from the book at all. Oh. Uh, what was the book? You I just am- had to play Pac Man. No, no, he had to play Joust against... I'm so sorry, I got the two confused. <laughs> he had to play Joust against the the lich at the middle of the Tomb of Horrors, hmm. Alex. Jeez. I'm guessing that that was considered visually unappealing. Well, also, like, what a deep cut. Like, a lot of people, although they did just recently reprint the Tomb of Horrors, but that's neither here nor there. There is a reference to the Tomb of Horrors in this movie, but now I hate myself for having said that. So, um... <laughs> I, I, something is I, I brought up a, a shorthand of the book, and a thing I do not, re- I did not remember from the book is that Dido gets straight up murdered by the oh, yeah. Sixers. Yeah, I, I forgot Dido. about that entirely, which shows you how it must much not have been it, all that tragic and dramatic a moment in the book. Just more of a sort of a H tap me on the shoulder. Dido's dead, she said, killed by the Sucksaws. They battered him with an Amiga 500. Bummer, I said. Sucksaws to be him? Now leave me alone, H. I'm trying to watch Terror Hawks. <laughs> and Ogden, it's because of Daito's murder that Ogden picks up the other four of them and takes them to his compound in Oregon. What? White nationalist state Oregon. Okay. okay. That's uncomfortable. While I, you know, criticize the fact that it's inconceivable that no one would have found in five years that uh, invisible wall that's my favorite bit of the movie because it felt like oh cool secret door in a video game i remember them or as demi adehue gabe sang remember king kong remember ferris bueller remember war games and back to the future remember tomb raider remember weird science remember battletoads and the iron giant remember star wars and transformers the movie remember ghostbusters remember the goonies remember when neon used to be trendy remember the where's the beef lady from wendy's
Remember Akira? That's from Japan. Remember Galaga and Mrs. Pac-Man? Remember Contra? Remember Street Fighter? Remember The A-Team? Remember Knight Rider? Remember The Simpsons, seasons one through nine? Remember logging onto America online? Remember Highlander and Highlander 2? Remember Star Trek? We certainly do. So, you know, we're going to get to more of the movie in in a minute, but the the thing, the very beginning of the book, the fact that the first key is hidden in the Tomb of Horrors, but the Tomb of Horrors is specifically located on the education planet, is one of the only, and I'm going to use the word but then immediately rectify it, interesting points to it in my mind that they didn't keep in the movie because Holiday specifically wanted to put the first a key on the planet where kids would be. So, because he wanted somebody that was like more of like a kid who would be interested in, in video games and, and things of that nature to get it rather than somebody like uh, Sorrento, which is why the Sixers had no idea where to even start that in the book. T- uh, ties up Halliday with Willy Wonka. And uh, one of the many videos we watched earlier today pointed out that Willy Wonka didn't just die and hope that someone worthy would uh, get his factory. And his factory was just a chocolate factory. This is the key to the in- the future of the entire world, effectively. Everyone's fucking addicted to it. And Halliday dies and leaves it to the possible chance that some douchebag potential white nationalist might end up getting the keys to the city of Earth. Mm-hmm. And, and I, th- I think the other important thing to remember uh, in comparing the book and the movie is that Holiday in the book, James Donovan Holiday, as Wikipedia tells me, is such a self-important asshole. Uh, he's He makes the whole uh, Easter egg hunt thing in a, a way that is really just so that he becomes a legend after his death. He's already but, a legend. He was already worshipped. But he wants he wants to be, in the book, he wants to be everything to this world. And, you know, for the conceit of the novel, becomes one. He's described as a rich eccentric holding a fantastic contest, which is really funny when you remember that Ernest Klein held a fantastic contest around the book itself coming out, wherein you could win one of his DeLoreans. Um, oh, he's got many DeLoreans. He had two. He built them, actually. Oh, okay. uh, I don't even know why. Oh, my God. Holiday's birth year is his own. Oh, God. Ernest, why? Um, so the self-insert in this case is actually not so much Wade as Halliday. It's it's Holiday in the book. Yeah, 100%. Because, of course, and Halliday being born away before has all of those points of reference, whereas Wade is, in fact, the... I suppose grandchild. Mm. Of, I was going to say, particular. so Wade is less Klein and more Klein's fantasy son. Or you, the reader. Yeah, and uh, be I my think the, child. Come and follow in my footsteps. That's really what it is, mm. and and he specifically describes creating Holiday to be uh, coincide with so that Holiday's pop culture interests would coincide with Klein's quote unquote and the other middle aged uber geeks I know, which. Yikes. 
The entire video was just over five minutes in length, and in the days and weeks that followed, it would become the most scrutinised piece of film in history, surpassing even the Sapruder film in the amount of painstaking frame-by-frame analysis devoted to it. Oh, I believe the Sapruder film has not been as overanalyzed as the Star Wars trailers. My entire generation would come to know every every second of Halliday's message by heart. Anorak's invitation begins with the sound of trumpets, the opening of an old song called Dead Man's Party. The song plays over a dark screen for the first few seconds until the trumpets are joined by a guitar, and that's when Halliday appears. But he's not 67-year-old man ravaged by time and illness. He looks just like he did on the cover of Time magazine back in 2014. A tall, thin, healthy man in his early 40s, with unkempt hair and his trademark horn-rimmed eyeglasses. He's also wearing the same clothing he wore on the Time cover photo, faded jeans and a vintage Space Invaders t-shirt. Halliday is at a high school dance being held in a large gymnasium. He's surrounded by teenagers whose clothing, hairstyles and dance moves all indicate that the time period is the late 1980s. Halliday is dancing too. Hey, how's it going? I'm here at the disco, he said. That's something no one ever saw him do in real life. Grinning maniacally, he spins in rapid circles, swinging his arms and head in time with the song, flawlessly cycling through seven, several signatures. Signature 80s dance moves. Is the 80s house signature dance moves? Yeah, they oh, did. The, moon the moonwalk. They did Thriller. The, well, okay, so oops, upside your head. Yeah. Say so, oops, upside your head. So he's yeah. doing that too. Oh, he could have done the Macarena if it just been a few years <laughs> later. <laughs> but Halliday yes. has no dance partner. Oh, no, no, no. It bucks face, it whips his skirt off. Uh, he has, as the saying goes, he's dancing with himself. That's, uh, that's l- not a saying, it's a song. Yes, by Billy Idol. A few lines of text appear briefly at the uh, lower left-hand corner of the screen, listing the name of the band, the song's title, the record label, and the year of release, as if it were an old music video airing on MTV, Oingo Boingo, Dead Man's Party, MCA Records, 1985. When the lyrics kick back in, Halliday begins to lip-sync along with, still gyrating, all dressed up with nowhere to go, walking with a dead man over my shoulder. That's how Oingo Boingo sound. He abruptly stops dancing and makes a cutting motion with his right hand. Ah, stop, silencing the music. At the same time, the dancers in the gymnasium behind him vanish and the scene around him suddenly changes. Halliday now stands at the front of a funeral parlour next to an open casket. A second, much older Halliday lies inside the casket, his body emaciated and ravaged by cancer. Shiny quarters cover each of his eyelids. The younger Halliday gazes down at the... The younger Halliday gazes down at the corpse of his older self with mock sadness, then turns to address the assembled mourners. Halliday snaps his fingers and a scroll appears in his right hand. He opens it with a flourish and it unfurls to the floor, unravelling down the aisle in front of him. He breaks the fourth wall, addressing the viewer and begins to read, I, James Donovan Halliday, being of sound mind and disposing memory, do hereby make, publish and declare this instrument to be my last will and testament, hereby revoking any and all wills and co... co- Brilliant. By me at any... That is an actual word. I know. It is important to know, you mentioned in 2011 when the book came out, it was a different time back then. I remember going to PAX in 2009 and thinking, everyone is just so lovely here. The geek shall inherit the earth. This is going to be great, you know, because the the smart people, the, the ones who were bullied in school are now actually being able to, like we have effective mastery over the internet while the the jocks are fading away. This is going to be great. We can bring the, the the pains that we've endured and you know step forwards. And all of these movies and things we've watched, all of these video games and things we've played, and all of these 
good readings we've made of them and lessons we've learned mean that the architects of the future will actually be able to move forwards knowing a hell of a lot more about people, each other, and the important things in life than, say, their fathers or their father's fathers. We are winning. And then many, many years went past and Gamergate happened, and I went, oh, well, fuck that as an idea then. Well, I was going to say, the thing that nobody quite recognized at the time was that previous to the internet becoming really big and ubiquitous, like in the early aughts and the, even in the 90s, there were a string, uh, and this is going to be a, a, a deep cut of history here, the, there were a string of bank robberies done by a white nationalist organization, and they used it to provide grants to essentially nascent Nazis to be online and create the online presence that would eventually make Gamergate and many of the problems we have today. Fuck. Uh, yeah, it's actually horrifying. There, there are some records of the FBI raiding different like white nationalist terrorist headquarters where they uh, uh, they abscond with like the, the the fucking rockets and the machine guns that they purchased, but ignore the fact that they bought a whole bunch of people like Mac and like Max or something. And it's it, it's it's really gross whenever you look into the history of all of that. I just hit a uh, wall. I might be too depressed to go on. I'm I can't so talk sorry. About fucking. Joust now. I can't talk about Cubit. Well, well there, there's there's two more things that I think uh, we should mention from the book that's a difference to the movie mm-hmm. uh, before moving on. Um, one, the book makes a really big show. Like, th- there is the reveal of H, one of the characters, has uh, a male avatar in the game, but is in, like, real life uh, a woman. But they make a big effort in the book to be like, she's a lesbian, so we don't have to worry about her and Wade getting together or anything like that, which is, like, uncomfortable. And then in the book, Ogden Morrow has, like, a huge role to play. Like, his reason for leaving Gregarious Games was because he was uh, he was uncomfortable by the people diving into the Oasis and escaping reality. He... Uh, just he, Understandably he, so. He presented himself as the, the great and powerful Og. Shouldn't it be Og the great and powerful? There's Keenan. Who's that? Oggie! Oggie, oggie, oggie. Oink, oink, oink. Oggie, oggie, oggie. Oink, oink, oink. Oggie. Oggie. Oggie, oggie, oggie. Oink, oink, oink. <laughs> yeah, see you later. Do you still keep in touch with Oggy? That was Oggy just then. Was it? How is he? He's fine. You don't even know him. No, I wish I did. He sounds great. He is, actually. Mm. So he's like this character who actually like shows up multiple times. Yeah, he's supposed to be kind of the... Oh, gosh. Because his relationship with Holiday is supposed to be inspired by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But honestly, I'm not sure which is supposed to be which. I think Og is supposed to be the Steve Jobs type. Uh, where he's much more of the charismatic one, and and uh, and I think it's also important that like the whole thing with uh, Kira, his wife, who, as far as I can remember, and as far as Wikipedia is telling me, her name was just Kira. It wasn't Karen. It didn't have anywhere near the same relevance to the story or anything. Oh, believe like, me, we're gonna talk about her. Mm. Good, because Holiday in the book is just an asshole. He is just a self-important, selfish asshole. Is that recognized in the book, or is it just that the average person reading it would go, well, this is this guy just feels like an asshole to me? 
that's certainly what I walked away from because there wasn't any deeper meaning or understanding. It was just somebody who is a, a super self-obsessed nerd who was so into pop culture references and nostalgia trips from his youth that he wanted to hand off his creation to someone who is just like him. Hell of a self-insert there, in earnest. A little bit. Uh, and it's it's just uncomfortable to look at today. I'm going to include some of my favorite bits from the We Hate Movies show on Ready Player One, which is a fucking laugh riot. I thoroughly suggest you check out that show and all the rest of their shows. Support them on Patreon. We need something to make us laugh during these dark times. Excellent! Really? 2045 Minecraft? We're still fucking farting around with Minecraft? This is Minecraft? like the future when wild stallions take over the planet or something. <laughs> Dude, Bill I wish. Ted's. God gave rock and roll to you. I will friend. say, speaking of Bill and Ted, I'll say it now. There's something so uh, undignified about Mark Rylance, A, in this performance. Yes. I think Mark, I think Mark oh, Rylance is the great. 70-year-old boy. And the 70-year-old boy, <laughs> but then he has to be like, oh, cool, Bill and Ted did it. And I'm like, oh, man, Mark Rylance fucking skipped Bill and Ted. Yeah. I I can tell you that. Yeah. Stephen, Stephen, uh, who are these Bill and Ted? <laughs> That's my thing, right? How much of this had to be explained to proper professional actor Mike Ro- Mark Rylance, mm-hmm. right? Like, who is any of this? Well, I, uh, uh, Stephen actually helped me out. He set me up on a on a dinner, a lunch with Will Wheaton, and I left five minutes in. <laughs> I was like, no, thank you. Hmm. Killian Murphy, there's no escaping this. We have to go back to... The theater to watch Bill and Ted's. <laughs> Buckaroo buckle Banzai. No, I didn't. I didn't watch any Hanna Barbera. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Is like the Buckaroo Banzai reference specifically. There are things that I'm sure will mm-hmm. continue on, right? Like I can maybe understand, like you're Back to the Future, sure. you're King Kong. For sure. The thing that the two major things that are noticeably absent here are the stars, Trek and Wars, of course. Wade mentions that he got obsessed with Halliday's interest because the way that the Easter egg hunt goes, Halliday uh, gets, sends a video out to the entire world saying, you have to understand everything about me. Get into the stuff that I liked and then if you f- can find the clues, you can find these keys and Easter eggs. And it seems to be initially everyone started doing it for the money and then it feels like Wade was doing it for the challenge but also for the sheer fun of it. Like, he, he didn't just want to have done a thing. He wants to absolutely chart every step of it. Mm. And that's the fun. That is obsessive behavior, and it's not very healthy at all. It is, but it, it feels a little bit like the way that should have played out is that from a very young age, Wade was into all of this stuff anyway. And kind of is, is obsessed with the stuff... Mm not obsessed with Halliday, not be pursuing all of this because they were Halliday's interests, but because they are his interests yeah. organically. So it's like, I like gummy bears anyway. Oh, I'm going to girl things. I like Ghostbusters anyway, even though it was decades and decades and decades ago. And so this gives me an opportunity to find out about more about Ghostbusters and perhaps monetize it. Mm. But, but that, also that this is a challenge. Of, that would set him very much against the IOI people who are very much just in it because they're being paid to be into it. Mm. 
so that the corporation can win yeah. the shares in the company. I have a question about that, actually, and this kind of ties in with the, the nonsensical. At the end of the film, one of the new rules that Wade makes in the Oasis is that uh, IOI are no longer allowed to have, the, like the loyalty centres are not allowed to go into the Oasis. They're not allowed to have any connection with it. Why are they allowed in the first place? Because surely that would be like corporate espionage. Can you imagine if Blizzard's main rival was allowed to set up accounts EA. in World of Warcraft yeah. that, well, were, that were corporate controlled, not like individuals? Effectively pretending. gold farming EA. Yeah. The, I think the big difference, though, is specifically the Oasis is created without regulations, and that ends up being a big point for Holiday, where he didn't want there to be regulations, but also was too short-sighted to understand the true ramifications of that, uh-huh. because I people are going this, to exploit that. Yeah, that's that's the next thing I was going to get to, actually. But I want can, this well, online space, this massive, infinite online space that everyone's going to be on, to be entirely unregulated. I want the Wild West to stretch over the entire world, and for everyone to live there. It's like VR4chan, but before we get too far away from it, you were talking about um, Wade's motivations, and I was reminded of something from game design that I wanted to to throw in there real quick. There's a thing that we talk about called Bartle's Taxonomy, and it's gone a lot of ways, but the shortest element of it is it is a shorthand description of different players' motivations for playing a game, and I think they're pretty well represented in the movie, specifically, because they're based on, or they're at least referenced on a deck of cards suits. So you have your clubs, which are uh, like the killers. They're the ones who are the PVP. They're basically IROC. They're the ones that like to dominate other players. The spades, which are the ones that like to dig up secrets and explore the game world. That's basically Wade and the other high five. Diamonds are the ones that specifically set goals and try to get like riches and, and treasure. They're, they would be the people who jumped into the game to find the the egg for the riches and then fell off after a while and then you have the hearts who are just the people there to interact and socialize with one another uh you kind of see all of these represented maybe not the hearts so much because that's basically just a lot of the background characters who kind of don't care about any of this nonsense but we're at the point now where the only people who are still interested in holiday's egg are essentially the clubs which are like a very small subset of the like swath of players which is sort of explaining why there's only a few of them still interested at this point um, and Sorrento and his squad of diamonds. Yeah, basically. Yeah, Sorrento is a diamond and because he just wants money, and all of the Sixers are essentially slaves to his will, so they're just extensions of what he wants to do. Seriously, like no. I can't even play like those multiplayer games anymore. You go no, no, on no. there and you just hear like a five year old cussing. Well, that's that's the thing that isn't happening enough in this movie. Like when he's a, when he's walking around getting ready for this big race, there should be like fifty f bombs from right. people, like just racial oh, slurs, the race, racial slurs, Where homophobic is, slurs. Dude, the but, only there is one time I have experience with like listening to other people in online gaming. It was like ps2 era and my brother had a call of something or other and he was like hey this is like the online thing and i'd never done it and i put it on and there was some high pitch voice using the n-word and that was the end of it (laughs) It i took the headset off uh halliday is like look i will give whoever finds this easter egg that i put in the game explains for everybody what an easter egg is and uh you will get half of a trillion dollars 
if you solve these three riddles that I've hidden in this game. And the only people that really and he's like and uh, this is what's his face Ty Sheridan narrating is like yeah people were really excited about it for a while but then most people fell off of a, of a half a trillion dollars <laughs> I don't know man I think that speaks to the culture on the whole which is like eh, it's got to be fucking fake let's go back to you know yeah. jerking off in the online no, viper room look, we, can we talk about that for a second where sure. are the jerk off palaces where it's is the hollow dead fuck half festival? Half a line of dialogue and you miss it. The motel yes. outside the casino planet. Yeah. Yep. They, it's like, oh, they do stuff in there because sex doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, not going to talk about that. It looked, looked like 2001 or something. Or look, it's, something was triggering it looks, in my mind. It looks, it look, it's, I think it's supposed to. It's a roulette wheel, but it looks like the space station it from 2001. sucks ass. My question is, if you are like... If I'm the captain of the Enterprise, right? If I'm like, oh, cool, like I got the new Enterprise game that I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, in this world, it seems like you're pretty well off. Is it just mine, or like, can Eric come in and do whatever? I think it's just yours because they mention Orson Krennic later on in the film. Who? <laughs> ben Mendelsohn. That's, that's his Rogue One name. Gotcha. Because <laughs> we're talking in pop culture, guys. I yeah. see. He mentions the Millennium Falcon, and he's like, oh wow, you have that. Like, so okay. I think it's kind of a rare thing. But if if you buy like the expansion. Pack, my question is like you know like if I'm like hey Mr. Data let's go on an adventure is somebody else like filleting him you know what I mean like oh, yeah. that just wants to do it but that's like, hey man I'm trying to have a wholesome time here and he's like yeah so am I well that, that goes into my question too it's kind of the same question I guess because what I was thinking about last night was like you can you your avatar can be anybody you can like sure. make your own mm-hmm. thing or you can look like a, a known figure kind of a thing so my question was like, there's a part at the beginning of the movie where you see like Fred Krueger get blasted. Oh, R.I.P. Is there just one, like can only one person pick Freddy Krueger and then he's off the um, table for everybody um, else? Obviously not. Yeah. Obviously that can't be I true. But we good. never see doubles in the movie because at all. Because it's a stupid fucking movie. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it doesn't I, know any, it doesn't think about any of this it's shit. It's a video game, so it stands to reason. Video game rules apply. You'd be Fred Krueger with a different color hat. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Like, the stripes are different colors, yeah. too, and probably. It also, and Freddy Krueger rules are, he can come back so long as you remember him, Andrew. It's kind of confused because Sorrento is marked out as uh, being false in his uh, loves. He says, I like uh, tab clear and I like to pull up a chair and and play with the Pac-Mans and I like to watch uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And he's being fed this by some nerd in an earpiece and uh, Wade sees through this because it's a reflection of the earlier scene where he and Artemis spar regarding their factoids uh, as to how much they all know about Halliday and they both know you know, a ridiculous amount about him, and it's very... They're authentic people, and Sorrento is an inauthentic person. But I can't defend Sorrento because he is a ridiculous sociopathic corporate shill who will, as soon as he's given the snifter of power, toss aside countless human lives for his own personal gain. But his inauthenticity is not really an indicator of his psychopathic, no. uh, of his sociopathic uh, behavior and treatment towards people. His sociopathic behavior and treatment towards people is the tip-off. Mm-hmm. Just because he doesn't like fucking wombles, d- that doesn't mean anything. Underground, overground, wombling free. The wombles of Wimbledon, common are we. Making good use of the things that we buy. 
the kernel of good in that scene is corporations are not your friends, as I think we found out with Blizzard this past couple of weeks. Oh, my goodness, right? Yeah. Christ, that dates this show. Can you remember a time when the issue was that the righteous political demonstrations of the people being asked to be treated like human beings were in China and Blizzard were disavowing Twitch streamers because they wanted to stay on the good side of the Chinese government? Can you remember the before times? So yeah, at best, Sorrento is Bobby Kotick. He's probably more like Yves Guillermo. But he's driving this DeLorean around. This is the basic bitch thing. And I'm like, he's driving this fucking thing. I would like to imagine it's like end of the first movie and beyond DeLorean, which is to say there's the hover conversion. Yeah, sure, man. It has the hover (laughs) conversion, which he just uses to slide under a truck. And then he goes back to driving. Fly, motherfucker! Fly that fucking car! Maybe that's not part of the rules in this particular... Oh, no. That came out in the early 90s. Sorry. (laughs) The train's not loud because it's not awesomely outrageous 80s. (laughs) Oh, cool cowabunga dudes. Oh, oh, you want the, the scorpion jacket from Drive? No. Oh! Dude. 2010. It's nice to give the other smaller IPs a bit of an airing, but it never feels like a real place. It j- I'm very aware of the fact that, oh, Krull, that must have cost not much. <laughs> For me, the, the real – because it's supposed to be kind of a visual representation of the anarchy of the internet. And in the movie, there's one furry. That feels weird to me, mm-hmm. but at least there's one. Yeah, she's a bad furry. She's an informant. I mean, fine, but still, she's in like two seconds of a scene, and it's just she boobs boobily across the floor. I mean, cat has massive boobs. She's a furry. I I mean, I I think I covered that (laughs) with the boobs boobily across the room. In real life, there'd probably be a lot more custom avatars, I would like to think. Uh, And we do see a little bit of duplication. The the Ninja Turtles show up in the background a whole bunch of times. We see, like, literally a dozen Master Chiefs charging across a field at one point. So there is some duplication of avatars in that way. But it's a lot more anarchic, um, which I I think is supposed to be capturing a little bit that feel of how anarchic the internet is Mm -hmm. with the avatars that we have, like on Twitter and such like that, except you're given form and you're able to embody them more specifically. Yeah, although it does amuse me and the fact that this is never really examined, that in this world where you can literally choose to look like anything you want... Wade still goes with this Johnny template, floppy-haired, white boy look. I think, so for me, I think that just belies how little creativity Wade has Mm. because his whole thing is obsessing with things that already exist, not making new things like H does. Mm. And H has a custom avatar that's actually really cool and has functionality in its own right. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And I guess that that is the point of one of the overall themes of the dangers of becoming obsessed with just replicating things that have come before. Yeah. This being a Spielberg film and the fact that we're trying to escape from the internet like that um, by, by rushing to the cinema, there are few to none trolls, scam artists, chancers, malicious hackers, and uh, 
advertising regulations means that you just don't get adverts when they're just wandering around. It's not like, bing, 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 you're a winner. Well, this Click is part this. of why IOI want it, don't they? Because they want to be mm-hmm. able to um, open up mm. advertising. Yeah, because that's one of the other regulations they talk about in the film is that Gregarious Games does have a lockdown on the ads so that it's not this uber-pervasive element. We can fill 70% of their viewing capacity before they have a seizure. So who has got advertising capabilities? Because obviously people need to know about products they can buy within the Oasis. I presume you'd be able to advertise things that exist within the world of the Oasis. Because it sounds only like Gregarious Games make all the things, which is a monopoly. Mm-hmm. At the end of the race, you get to you're about to like go off the Brooklyn Bridge and jump into Central Park, but King Kong stops you. It's a Peter Jackson King Kong. It looks like it yeah. is the Peter oh, Jackson classic King Kong. 80s. How yeah. cool would it have been though, man, if they just had the puppet? Walking yes, exactly. Around. They should have had the, like the 1979 Jeff Bridges one. Oh shit, that, that fucking puppet just was to be, gnarly. To be period specific, that's actually true. Yeah, he would have been obsessed um, with that. Actually, movie. could it be as the Jeff Bridges one? <laughs> cool dude. I'm not awesome making that up. Right? He's in he's in one of those, right? Yeah, 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 yeah Jeff Bridges. It's the, like 1976. That's or the one like with that. the the World Trade Center. Correct. Uh, but so he, he she, she's about to get nailed by King Kong. And he re- <laughs> what? what? Destroyed. Thank I mean, you. listen, in the, in the Oasis, you could do anything. <laughs> yes. You could be anyone. You could get nailed by King Kong. <laughs> I want to be this little Final Fantasy person and get fucked by King Kong. <laughs> sure, man. That's Whatever what, you do in the Oasis. That's what it's for, baby. That's the, <laughs> Minecraft, no. Everybody's on the fuck planet. Let's, yes. let's stop this. I People. think everything's a fuck planet, though. I think you can just... Exactly. If you're in this race, you're jerking off in your little car. Do they, like, Absolutely. actually... You get the wacky racist car, and you're jerking off in it. <laughs> they should be in this race. <laughs> oh, no, man. Not, like, I'm fucking the, the dog from Wacky oh, Race. Man, Butley's Red Rocket. That's the thing, right? Yep. It's like, this isn't... This would be ruined by society pretty quickly Precise. because yes. of all the fucking. Like you'd be riding the race. It's like, all right, here's the part where Kong comes out, and then some dude would just run out in the middle of the road, fucking jerking <laughs> off in the street. Oh my yeah. god, Planet Four Chan. Yeah, that yeah. is oh, hell. Okay. That guys, is what guys, hell would guys, be. not everyone can play as Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing, though, right? Where is all the fucking racism? Where are all yes. the fucking neo Nazis oh, on this sure. thing? Oh, okay, if I can't be Hitler, Pinochet, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I got Pol Pot again. <laughs> There's nothing new in uh, Ready Player One. I think this is the thing, one of the things that bugged me the most. Everything, because it comes from Halliday's brain meets, must be from between 1978 and 1989, and then from a second window of between 2015 and 2017 for the film. Very little from the 1990s, nothing from the 2000s because Ernest Cline stopped there. A few things from recent video game memory because they wanted younger kids to have something. In fact, it's possible they were product placements, so the money went in the opposite direction, as in, like, rather than, can we pay you for Halo, it's, Microsoft, if you give us some money, we will include Master Chief. In fact, a whole bunch of Master Chiefs. I could be wrong about that, but it would feel more like that this is an advertising opportunity, in that this reminds me of what Jim Sterling said about the Gears of War character skins from the new Terminator movie. You're effectively paying them to wear a billboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're, 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 they're getting people to opt in to advertising their stuff, which is kind of similar to the um, uh, getting 
points and money in a Call of Duty game for watching people unbox things. Like for watching people open loot boxes, you get like a, an incremental small amount of credits for that. Just sitting there watching and coveting. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing from the 2010s, nothing from the 2030s, nothing from the 2040s. No new music, no new characters, no new movies, no new games, no ideas, just regurgitation of controlled IP. Imagine if nothing new had been made for the past 30 years. I mean, you can because that's 1990. So mm -hmm. aside from a few bits and bobs here and there, that is 60 years of creative stagnation. That is a nightmare. And I cannot wake up from that nightmare while watching this film. This film ended up being a real effort in like the author is dead. Mm. Like I didn't end up looking at any of the behind the scenes footage because I like I think Ernest Klein is wrong. And I think Steven Spielberg did something with this movie that is almost a response to the book in a way that I'm really excited to get to. Okay. appreciate how in the beginning of the film they make a big deal of talking about how you can be any avatar you want any species any sex and then h makes the specific comments about like you don't know artemis might be a man and it's just like that feels gross mm. like it's it's like a movie thing but it's like both kind of like transphobic and homophobic in like a real specific way that i can't quite explain how uncomfortable it made me well that particular bit i think for me it was i couldn't work out what the point was that they were trying to make there is it be very careful when you're online because you don't know if the person you're talking to is who they say they are or is it it doesn't matter who they are because you're connecting with them on a level that your interpretation of them is not it doesn't matter Important. it's couched in the classic 90s gay panic how could you talk to this person online they could be a guy mm, it doesn't matter if there was any subtlety to that whatsoever it's just with, couched in the standard terms with an additional element of H being kind of jealous that Parzival wants to hang out with somebody else which yeah. is also kind of strange Bingo. and I think it's also a direct quote from the book which makes it even stranger and maybe explain why it's bad mm. uh, or worse shall we say I I, I like that they really cut down on Artemis feeling uncomfortable about the birthmark and Wade being like, no, I think you're beautiful like they do in the book, which is so goddamn much of the book and it makes me hate it. It's, But they still have the moment where Artemis is like, well, you'd be disappointed in real life, which like, okay, a, a girl who is presenting herself online in a way to that is false that is uncomfortable with her real life i can understand that mm -hmm. but then when wade shows up oh but for the record i'm not disappointed and it's only a scene like they, they really cut out a lot of the bullshit around it mm -hmm. but it still is just like why are you in here you're just mm. I, th it, I think 
The issue that I had with that, weirdly watching it again today, was more the fact that they didn't explore that more in the opposite direction. Because it struck me that that whole thing about I'm not disappointed, that's Terminator. That's Kyle meeting Sarah and she says to him, you must be pretty disappointed because I can't live up to this legend that you've built up in your mind because of who I am online. And the fact that... Um, they could have emphasized it so that her issue is not to do with how she looks because ultimately she's gorgeous and the birthmark is irrelevant but the fact that within the world of the oasis she's this legend and no matter how much she puts herself into being this sort of determined resourceful social activist in real life which is what she is she's got this kind of imposter syndrome I don't think I can ever really be what people think I would be and I, I just felt like that was a bit of a wasted opportunity really if they, if they weren't gonna play the no don't look at me I'm hideous um, then they really percent. could have gone that way a thousand percent I agree with you so much there's so much wasted potential where they could have turned something that in the book was gross and superficial mm. and do something interesting with it Literally something that would generate interest in what was going on rather than repulsiveness. Indeed. And Indeed. I, I I appreciate that they lessened it than from the book, mm. but they couldn't not. <laughs> you're so beautiful like a tree or a high class prostitute. You're so beautiful. Mm, you could be a bottom model. You probably still have to keep your normal job A time Spend a part of your time modeling And part of your time next to me of Artemis as well um, Just to raise the issue of the boot suit <laughs> The wearing of something that conveys pain and pleasure, and that is obviously how it's presented. This is the reason why people would want to wear these, because you can engage with other people through means of them sliding their hands around and it will make you feel like they're actually touching you. But there is a downside to that. And they, they do show what that downside is. Getting kicked in the knackers. Getting kicked in the knackers. <laughs> Um, and, and various other um, sort of physical injuries. But not just that, that but, but there are times when uh, characters are going, oh, 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 and they're trying to get to a place, but they're being hit. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Would be so much easier to get to this place if you weren't feeling like you were being hit. At mm. one point, TJ Miller is strangling an 11-year-old boy. And for a start, it's like, Wade, this shouldn't matter because if the 11-year-old boy takes off his neck sensors, then fucking TJ Miller can throttle away as he is wont to do mm. to this defenseless slender person. At the same time also like he can't kill this child, he can kill his avatar so he loses all his gold fucking coins, something which happens in a second anyway. Mm. That's not a threat. <laughs> well the whole zeroing out thing is another nonsensical element that I absolutely need to mention because like so you take real money and you turn it into game money, and you use that to buy stuff to then hopefully generate more game money. But if you die, it all goes away. Mm. feels like a really high-stakes yeah. environment. It's incredibly high risk, With unless you're going to get huge amounts of coins for that risk. 
And it needs to be a really tightly structured game system to keep that balanced as well, because otherwise that mm-hmm. is so exploit-friendly. And I feel like, going back to like the Bartles taxonomy, you're basically catering to the, the clubs. Because if the whole universe is a PvP zone... Yikes! Yeah. And, and like, would you no want to be in that war zone? Like, it, it, just imagine diving into the average death match in Call of Duty <laughs> and knowing that you'd lose loads of experience every time you die. Like that one bit in Fable Two, they don't do that in most games where they actually suck away everything you've earned because people go, "I'm not fucking doing that." And in Fable right. Two, you could actually give up so that you don't lose that experience. <laughs> This is why World of Warcraft has specific PvP servers yeah. rather than having it enabled at all times. And it's I just got not- corpse camped back in my day. This buffalo sat on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. But, but still, it's, it's, it feels like such a high-stakes environment. And in the book, they do talk about how some worlds are PvP-enabled and other ones are not. The but furry in the movie, world is definitely not. It is chill-out zone. Oh, my God. The furry <laughs> world, like... It is mature, anything goes, respectful. except for combat. Respectful, <laughs> probably pretty respectful. I mean, if, you want, if you're if you into that kind of stuff, there's another world over there that we run. What, dirty, dirty but, ferrets? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> ferrets, ferrets do have a lot of problems with, you know, the smell, really. We need to sequester them. We love you, Matt. To another. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to tell him to listen to this. Anyway. Yeah, they don't go into that in the movie at all, and I think because it that makes no sense, right? And I think that even if they had mentioned like when they're talking about Planet Doom in the beginning, be like, it's the biggest PvP zone in the Oasis. Great, bam, right there. We know that PvP is a thing that isn't a hundred percent everywhere. Mm. Maybe that's interesting in some way because then it can reflect on other locations. But then that lessens the nightclub scene, because why would you make a nightclub scene that is PvP enabled? Mm, indeed. <laughs> Regarding the haptic suit as well, this was another thing that I noticed. The scene where Artemis is sliding her hands all over Wade mm. and asking him if he's got one of those suits that's all over so that she can do precisely that. At no point in that conversation does he return the favour. He never asks her if she's wearing one. He never suggests that he should in any way touch her. The ladies can touch you. You cannot touch the ladies at any point under any circumstance. Is that clear? Watching that scene, it makes me feel so much like she's just fucking with him in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not until later that she actually <laughs> falls for him. Mm. But I just... He is so uncomfortable in that scene. I at least appreciate it on that level. It, it does emphasize how young he is. And ultimately, the uh, I think he says at the beginning of the film that he was born in 2027, which means that at this point in the game, he's 18. Um, so it, it does kind of have that. It emphasizes his idealism, I suppose, by making the point that he is not yet an adult, that he's not had any experience of of being out in the real world and and even if this was not a construct of this universe he would still be of a, a an age and a mentality where he hadn't had that much experience out in the real world yeah especially since he shows a lot of the same characteristics as holiday mm. so he's definitely already following that path and holiday in this film is really depicted as somebody with severe social anxiety somebody who's probably neurodivergent in some way Mm -hmm. and who is like obsessed with certain things but not so good with people and wade is better with people 
but he's definitely following that path in the like in the book that's the point but in the film he follows it for a while and kind of gets pulled away from that thankfully because the movie is different from the book in so many ways mm. but he definitely has no experience with girls at all and also that haptic suit's not terribly old like he got that fairly recently mm. in the movie so he's probably like oh boy okay this is hmm not sure what to do about this and she is just fucking with him and i kind of love it for that but it is very <laughs> strange y- you know we're really trying to make haptic suits in like vr like game design stuff like yeah, yeah. want to they're, make they're those defi- they're advancements of existing technology mm, absolutely you, although they're not so advanced that people aren't walking around the streets with like these huge vr visors strapped yeah. to the front of their face also a, a man of time to wear out a groinal socket i do wonder <laughs> <laughs> there is that. i'm just but, saying just invest in teledildonics we're gonna really take off in the next 20 years but you'd like to think that at some point Google Glasses would would really have mm. become a thing. You know, they would have made these wearables a little bit less like you're going to fall over. I want to see David Cronenberg. Like, I, I want Ready Player One to be an actual world with mm-hmm. a different director every time telling different stories. Cronenberg's one. Ooh. <laughs> Isn't that just Videodrome? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, but updated for the 2040s. Absolutely. Yeah. Existence. you got to plug it into your ass. <laughs> oh, Existence. i got to get a copy of that. <laughs> That's oh, worth dear. talking about at some point, I think. Mm. I did Existence as part of my mm. degree. Ooh. One of my modules was um, a media studies thing on technology and films, and we did The Matrix and Existence. And uh, what's the thing with Ray Fiennes and... Shakespeare in Love. Okay, that'll do. Not Ray Fiennes. <laughs> Joseph Fiennes? Uh, no, it is Ray Fiennes. The... Oh, Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, Clash of the Titans? Strange Days... The English patient. <laughs> okay, move on. She's right, it is strange days. <laughs> okay. Any any dark future where um, weird, creepy men can have sex with women using mini-discs. Mm. If we did cover Existence, I think it'd probably be a quick review, and the bent of it would still be, there's no way people would make video games like this. Maybe they might make some video games like this. But your average person does not want to get physical surgery in their spine just to play Fortnite. No one wants to carry around a large kidney in their handbag that gets moody. You got Willem Dafoe standing over you with a road drill in your back going, Eh, I'm gonna put some sockets in you. Yeah, no, that's that, that would definitely happen at some point, but it would not become the video game industry. That would become like the equivalent of, oh, body-piercing extremism in the future, where your body piercings take you to a whole nother world. But back to attitudes to women, and I think it's time to hear Ernest Klein's poetry. Take it away, we hate movies. Nerd Porn Auteur by Ernest Klein. (laughs) I've noticed that there don't seem to be any porno movies that are made for guys like me. Yes, All the porn I've come across was targeted at beer-swilling, sports-par-dwelling, 
alpha male. Men who like their women stupid and submissive. What? I'm gonna vomit. Men who can only get it up for the monosyllabic cock hungry nymphos. Wait, is this Wait, a poem? This no. Is a po- what is, <laughs> did, did you? You're getting duped here. This is not real. Uh, with gargantuan <laughs> with gargantuan breasts and a three word vocabulary. This was in the New Yorker. Adult <laughs> films are populated with these collagen-injected liposuction women, many of whom who have resorted to surgery and self-mutilation. Mm. Oh, I get oh, it. Wow. It's, it's an idiotic pentameter. Yeah. <laughs> In an attempt to look the way that they've been told to look. These aren't real women. They're objects. And these movies aren't erotic. They're pathetic. These vacuum-headed fuck bunnies what? don't turn me on. Oh, they disgust me, dude. They're going to work, asshole. And I'm not a guy. And I'm not against pornography. I mean, I'm a guy, and guys need porn. Can, can fact? We, can we can we get somebody to help, Ernest? Wait like, a second. This, this... The poem says fact. Like a preacher needs pain, like a needle needs a vein. Guys need porn. Whoa. I don't want to watch this misogynistic he-man woman-hater porn. I want porno movies that are made for guys like me in mind. Guys who know the sexiest thing in the world is a woman who is smarter than you are. And who wears heels. You can have... Just stop on my ball! You can have the whole cheerleading squad. I want the girl <laughs> in the tweed skirt and the horn-rimmed glasses. Oh, is this okay. a poem? <laughs> Betty Fenebrowski, the valedictorian. Oh, Yes. First, I want to copy her trig homework. Oh, my God. And I want to make mad, passionate love to her. Someone call the police. For oh. hours and hours until she reluctantly asks if we can stop. Oh, my God. Because she doesn't want to miss her Battlestar Galactica. Great. I love I love, I love, I love, this because it's like, you could have the cheerleaders. I get the schoolgirls. <laughs> <laughs> Summa cum laude, baby. That's what I call erotic. There's still more. I'm gonna keep going. Please. Well, we have to now. <laughs> but do but do you ever see the this kind of woman in a in a contemporary adult film? You don't no. walk half of the Great Wall. This, by the way, this is worse but, than when I read that poop story on the Nexus. I wish I let you finish that over this. Absolutely. Which is why I'm starting to write writing and directing geek porno. I will be the quintessential nerd porno oh, turd. That's what this is. And the women of my porno mo- movies will be the kind that drive nerds like me mad with desire. I'm mm-hmm. talking about girls who used to fuck up the grading curve, mm-hmm. the girls in the Latin Club and the National Honor Society, girls with weird clothes, braces, four eyes, and 4.0 GPAs. Braces. Brady, articulate bookworms with Mensa cards in their purses and chips on their shoulders. My porn starlets will come in all shapes and sizes. My porn starlets will be too busy working on their PhDs to go to the gym. Stop using the word starlet. Oh, <laughs> kind of porno movies will have girls that don't even have to get naked. Yeah, it'll Leave be a, the stockings on. It'll be a simulation of Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll never talk. They'd, go, they'd take guys down to the rec room and beat them repeatedly at chess and then talk for hours and hours about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle or the underlying mm. social <laughs> the underlying social I, I meta- came. the underlying social metaphors in the alien movies. Uh, what but the fuck? Here, it's, here comes the end. Buy stock in hand cream companies because Ooh. there's about to be a major shortage. And I'm not talking about straight porn. Oh no. There should be fuck films for my nerd brethren of all sexual orientation. How brave of you. Great gay porn dungeons with 
Titles like Dungeons and Drag Queens. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, great. This idea is a fucking gold mine. I'm going to make millions because that's what this movie is, anyway. Is uh, this a poem? <laughs> because <laughs> what this country is, is full this? Of this is a data- novelette. This country is full of database programmers and electronics engineers that are, aren't getting the loving they dis- so desperately need. Uh-huh. Thank you, and Ted you, Kaczynski. And you can help. <laughs> Recycling is fake. And you can help if you're an intelligent woman interested in breaking into the adult film industry. If you can tell me the name of Luke Skywalker's home planet, then you're hired. And it doesn't, Wait, what? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you think you're overweight or unattractive. Oh, he wasn't I, born on Tatooine, dude. It doesn't matter if you think you're beautiful. You are beautiful. And I will make you a star. Well, well, I have to start smoking now, I guess. <laughs> Jesus. Now, I could have read you that poem myself, but I couldn't have read it better than Stephen Sadak of We Hate Movies. Plus, to a degree in the edit, I am trying to compensate for the fact that around about this time in the recording session, the migraine I was suffering from really started kicking in. You can kind of hear it in my voice, and eventually, I'll let you in on this, I ended up just kind of stopping talking, encouraging Sharon to keep the show moving forwards, and then eventually just kind of lying under the table while Victoria elaborated on why she really liked Ready Player One. And in 13 years of podcasting, this was about the only time that my back has touched the floor. Apart from that one time I fell off my chair during Digital Cowboys. This was a bad evening for me. So I hope that the show you've been listening to so far has been fun nonetheless. So to a degree, I have kind of used what We Hate Movies have said to elucidate my points. And rather than paraphrasing them, I'm just placing their points in exactly the right places. Seriously, I cannot thank these guys enough for the constant inspiration to step up our comedy game, and they are one of the shows that have kept us going through the Trump years. That takes skill, and that is special. Shining scenario. It is weird that Sharon and I have spent more than 10 years podcasting. Sharon presenting for more than uh, coming on five years now. Uh, And uh, we've never talked about the Overlook Hotel. And then in the space of just a few weeks, we are talking about The Shining, Doctor Sleep, and Ready Player One, the three main instances of the Overlook goddamn hotel. It's weird. Maybe there's something of a shinescence going on right now. But, um, yeah, this was a decision to switch out... What was the bit in the book instead? It was War Games, wasn't it? War Games, Effectively, yeah. yeah it, it was like, right, but no one's going to remember War Games, but The Shining is a very visual uh, uh, movie, and um, Steve remembering his collaboration with Stanley before Stan died on uh, making AI clearly wanted to pay homage to his friend. And uh, I, I don't think Stanley would have liked this whole sequence. I think he would have been appalled. It was uh, amusing to some people. It was uh, appealing and uh, meta and unusual. 
especially at the beginning. And then it kind of descends into that's not what The Shining's about at all, and uh, <laughs> and, and changing the dynamics of it to the point where fans of The Shining were going crazy with that is all wrong. And uh, Artemis even kind of excuses it uh, at one point with a throwaway line of, well, he's made it not like The Shining at all, or something when they're, they're mm-hmm. stalking down the corridor. I mean, it's appropriate. Stephen King wrote The Shining, Stanley Kubrick got the rights off him and then made his version of The Shining, and then Steven Spielberg comes along, gets the rights off of Stanley's widow, and makes his version of Stan's version of Steve's version. Other Steve. But I kind of don't mind. It's nice to see an- another film visually referenced uh, quite so painstakingly, and obviously everyone involved uh, had a whale of a time. What does bug me, though, is a thing Jenny Nicholson mentioned, which is that Halliday... As revenge, sorry, as a sign of misplaced affection or possibly regret. Actually, I'll let Jenny explain this one because she can do better than me trying to elucidate a very similar point with a migraine. So Halliday in his youth took a girl named Kira out on a date. She wanted to go dancing, but instead he took her to see The Shining. And apparently she had a bad time and didn't want to go on a second date with him. It happens. Halliday's best friend, Ogden Morrow, later dated and married this girl, and they were extremely in love and were a wonderful couple until years later she tragically died in a car accident. Halliday remained obsessed over this woman that he had one bad date with until his dying day. He programs her likeness without her blood blessing or the blessing of her surviving relatives into his game as part of the quest for his magical easter egg. Just this speaking, moving, ghoulish 3D puppet of this poor dead woman who probably doesn't remember or know Halliday that well and had no part in this, just part of his puzzle quest and she must be danced with or kissed to get the magic key. Maybe some of you guys have had some bad first dates, but like, I I promise you that Kira has got you beat. But to go further than that, this simulacra is aware of the passage of time and is aware that a great amount of time can pass if she is left in this one particular place. And he leaves her in a, a hellscape surrounded by zombies dancing forever until someone can turn up and reprieve her so that they can get the key. There's no good way to confine someone you knew and someone you think you might have loved to the Overlook. Just, um, maybe war games would have been better. Stuck with Matthew Broderick forever. Okay, give me The Shining. Fucking Goro, man. How dare you? And, and it's fucking, it's Goro, but then there's a chest burster yeah. from Alien pops out of him, and it's like Artemis in disguise is right. the gag. Oh my god, a girl who knows what Goro is. Oh, fuck. Oh, and she could talk about the Aliens franchise. Oh, yeah. She Where's- watched Alien. <laughs> The fucking message of the movie is if you know enough about pop culture and Steve Jobs, you can save the fucking world. That's the end thesis of all of this. It's also the only only way to live happy. Also, God is a gamer. This is a very understandable take home from the movie. And it is not one that I'm going to counterpoint. But Victoria did.
A lot of the people who hate this film hate it because the references it is making are only skin deep. The, oh, The Iron Giant was a film about uh, like demilitarization. It was an anti-conflict, anti-weapon film. Sure, absolutely. But also, none of that matters. None of the references in this film are anything more than skin deep because they don't matter. The message of the film is that pop culture references are not as important as the interpersonal relationships that we make with each other. And I think that that is so contextual, the entire movie supports it. And that, in my mind, is the subversion of the film to the book. Because the book obsesses and cares about pop culture minutiae to the point where it is unbearable. And everybody in the book who is obsessed with it is treated as the best person, but is in actuality really odious. And in the film, the people who are the most obsessed with it have to learn to not be in order to succeed. Mm -hmm. And the only people who got really upset about this film and its pop culture references are the people who themselves have a significant portion of their identity tied up in those pop culture references. So it would make sense that your reaction would be very negative since it is shallow because you put a lot of importance on that. But the message of the movie isn't about those references. And that's why I actually came away from this movie liking it, enjoying the the journey that it went on. The the people who don't have the kind of uh, identity tied up in the pop culture references like this film made a ton of money mm. like a lot of people went and saw it and it has, actually has like pretty decent ratings on like imdb and such mm. but the general like internet conversation around it is oh it's just using these things flippantly it doesn't understand the deeper references and it's just as i believe somebody put it on twitter a parade of funko pops that somebody is showing you their collection but that's the point the message in the film isn't that these references are important. It's that, that they're not, and that the people and the connections you make and the family that you make is what's important. The way H is presented and how she gets to kind of show herself, I really liked that. I liked her character ahead of time. I liked the, the way... Um, I mean, even even before I'd clicked that it was a woman, I liked that it was this this big guy who was nevertheless coming off as quite uh, smart and was obviously very skilled in terms of the the fixing stuff. And, th- and that did seem to be a little bit of a uh, a twist on the trope because the big guy is usually just there for muscle and hitting things. And not to mention that H hasn't seen The Shining, is afraid of horror movies, and when the naked lady gets out of the bath, is like. I understand self-care is important, and it's just like a really, like, cute thing to come out of this big, hulking, like, cyber monstrosity, and I loved H in this film quite a bit. Absolutely, and when you pair that up with the way she presents in real life as well, she's not an overly girly girl, um, even when you get sort of her out of her avatar, um, and I, I thought her performance was pretty good. They didn't give her enough to do in real life, but um, but yeah, I liked that. Yeah, I, I really liked H's portrayal. Mm, yeah. The fact that in that big battle scene, uh, Daito takes a Gundam form to go up against Godzilla. And that was quite... I'm not entirely sure what was going on in that interaction, but I know I kind of liked it. 
I love I, I like that a lot because in the book they make a big deal that the the mecha thing that I believe Wade uses because Daito's dead at that point in the book is like oh God, some does Wade do everything in the book. Yes, that's why. That's one of the reasons why I hate him so much in the book. But it, they make a big deal out of the fact that the mech that he turns, like he gets into, is like some kind of horseshit Spider-Man knockoff mech thing from Japan that they spend like a page and a half describing the minutia of the background, mm-hmm. as opposed to just it's a Gundam. Everyone knows what a Gundam is. Look, it is the iconic Gundam. It did the the pose, and it is coming down to kick Mecha Godzilla's ass. Mm. That's so great. Yeah, there's also, a, I suppose, a slight element there of this is new inverted commas Japan taking on old Japan, which is like the there there are newer. Uh, creations in this world that are attempting to go up against the older, overwhelming nostalgia element of it. And isn't Mechagodzilla in the original film specifically kind of like a knockoff of Godzilla to fight? So, like, Godzilla is more of like a, a, a touchstone for Japan, mm. while Mechagodzilla is like a pale, re- for, like, rep, um, corporate Godzilla. Yeah, where like it's it's like a, a pales in comparison to and is kind of like a knockoff. And then the Gundam is, like, kind of almost representing, like, a newer, more authentic kind of, like, Japanese IP. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, there, there might be something there that you can tease out. But it was it was a scene that I, I ended up really appreciating. And then the fact that to take down the Mechagodzilla, it ends up taking, like, three of the high five and none of them are weighed mm. is, like, I appreciate. It's also noteworthy that the friendship between Sho, who is Chinese, and Daito, who is Japanese, is a touching, tacit suggestion that the grandchildren of these two countries that hate each other will form friendships and alliances. The performance from Mark Rylance as Halliday is something that I think is what brings most of the heart to this. He might have actually been my favourite aspect of this because Rylance treats every role with honesty. So even if almost everything about Halliday is troubling, Rylance made him feel like a real person. And considering the source material, that took genuine talent. I agree. I I think that his performance is impressively nuanced. I don't know how else to explain it. Just even in the very beginning when they're showing the scene where they're unveiling the Oasis, and he says, and if you check under your seats, you won't find anything there, but we're going to be bringing you out. Like, he kind of is, like, trying to make a joke, and it's a kind of lands. I don't know. There's there's something about him that he's, like, really lovably awkward Hmm. in a really, like, Authentic's a really good way to put it, Alex. Yeah, he re- he treats everything with honesty. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you because you only see him in in snippets and bits, and it's difficult to piece together a whole character out of that, especially when we know that the the more rounded and uh, comprehending version of him that we see at the end is ultimately just a representation. It's not the real person. But I kind of felt from that last section that he has distilled who he really wants to be or wanted to be out of all of the parts of himself that he was all of the little bits and pieces that the curator holds and Wade picks through to try and get 
clues and it it kind of felt a little bit like the process of hearing stories about somebody's childhood or their teenage years or their early relationships in therapy sessions and and trying to piece together who that person is now from that um, especially when in this particular scenario you don't have the real human being sat there in front of you telling you what they want to to do next what they want to take all those pieces and move on to so you've got this sort of uh, two extremes of Halliday him as he was just before he passed away and him as a child and Wade almost seems to be trying to find the balance point in between the two so that he can take the essence of what Halliday really wanted this to be and move it forward yeah which is even visually represented in the in the movie Mm. that's ah that's a really I really really like that read that's the closest we get to seeing Holiday make like a soul of something, and it's him. He's he like he's a creator who literally poured his heart and soul into the game. Yeah, I think if there's anything extra that I would have liked to see in that end, um, that end piece, and I know Alex, you felt that it that one element that could have made it a lot stronger was would be if the decision had been made to turn the oasis off completely it's the opiate of the masses people are abandoning the real world to get fucked on digital heroin press the fucking button turn it off but i think for me it was more of a a a small thing um that i think could have could have altered it and that would be for wade to make adjustments to his avatar at that point so that Passable looked more like him. An oasis is somewhere you have to stop on a long desert journey. It's not somewhere you live. If you stay in the oasis, you never get anywhere. I don't think they do enough to, like in the end, because the ending resolution of not letting IOI access it with their loyalty centers, closing it on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's all taken straight from the book. Mm. And it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't think that's enough. No. I think we gotta do more. <laughs> I think the world's pretty fucked there, everybody. I'm I'm concerned because in real life VR is really taking leaps and bounds. I practic I have almost an oasis rig sitting behind me on the table that's cordless now, so uh, it felt oddly realistic to our future in ways that made me really uncomfortable. And then like, we'll do this minor thing to fix it. Like, uh, maybe do more. Just just do do more and you can hear more from this show mostly from the period when I was under the table unable to speak on the Patreon it's a cutting class episode and there's a lot more positive things that Victoria had to say and some different conclusions are reached now I wish I could agree with everything that Victoria said but I don't see the film concluding in clear lines that audiences can fully grasp how horrific and shallow the Oasis, as portrayed here, actually is. The eye of the director needed to be turned outwards as well, both showcasing the glamour and then pulling back the curtain to reveal the darkness behind it. And there are so many things to be critical about in this society which mirrors our own, but the movie barely manages anything other than passing disapproval and a kind of a limp thumbs down to 
psychopathic late-stage capitalism. There was a distinct disinterest in honing in on the causes of the real-world suffering, obliviousness to the perspective that, by Wade's time, this is what online gambling has become, and that everybody is addicted. Prison slavery. Once again, as with Lincoln, Spielberg seems to be unaware of the extent of this in the modern world. He definitely did not seem to want to draw parallels. Hate speech being virtually unavoidable in public spaces online and gutless social media platforms absolving themselves of responsibility and effectively allowing Nazism, something I know that Spielberg loathes, to his core to proliferate in the 21st century. Or, if that's too heavy, just make it a child-friendly version where astonishing meanness is impossible to get away from. That translates. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. Seeing all of this through the eyes of an uninteresting, uninquisitive boy means that the real meat of the story is obscured by an overabundance of visual and verbal easter eggs. GoldenEye 64, odd job slappers only. I understood that reference. This leaves the audience playing a video game themselves, trying to spot every variety of tree without seeing the wood. None better exemplified than having the Iron Giant turn up. Going into red-eye mode to shoot at Mechagodzilla with his death ray. Trying to destroy effectively a Jaeger by hand before helping Artemis strike the killing blow with her pulse rifle. Aliens, 1986. Now true, it's Sorrento in there. Sorrento probably deserves to die, and he doesn't. He gets arrested like all bad, crooked, extremely wealthy white men do. But fundamentally... I am not a gun. The giant was built to be a gun and chooses to be a shield. This is a particular point that so many have already made very succinctly, so all I can do is to urge you to watch this wonderful animated anti-war treasure, then listen to our 2014 episode on it, accompanied by Daniel Floyd, which is on our School of Movies archive podcast feed, The Iron Giant. If all of these references aren't supposed to matter, the movie would be critical of them. The angle on Ready Player One, the film, is all skewed. If you think about the way the world is presented to us, this should be a hellscape that we want to avoid becoming, only with cool vehicles and outfits that are deliberately positioned as distractions to our hero characters. Instead, it's the other way around. The poor people are presented with an almost paradise on the inside. So let's not think too hard about our dying species on the outside. And this one bad corporation that wants to make money. This toothless approach is where cyberpunk goes to die. I can't blame Stephen for wanting to make a fun film. He was giddy with the chance to revisit a very creative era of his life. And God help us, so were we all on some level. I've heard it said that only Spielberg could have made this movie good. I personally disagree and would, like I said, enjoy seeing an anthology movie with four directors and four sections. Stephen himself for one of the segments because some of what he does in this is really good. But then, 
we get Denis Villeneuve, director of Blade Runner 2049, with his segment. Then Kathy Yan, director of Birds of Prey, with her segment. And finally, Ryan Coogler, director of Black Panther, giving us the conclusion. I got a feeling we're going to get more perspectives that way than just possible. I feel like Klein's source text would be almost unrecognizable by that point, and that is a good thing, because the world he presented us with needs to be challenged and laid bare, not simply marveled at and used in moderation. Because of the disinterest in the nastier, more frightening side, I have to hold Stephen himself to account. Ernest Klein is a chode, and I am envious of his roaring success as a writer, the way that comedians like Bill Hicks were furious in the early 90s, that after years of trying to make audiences think with material that holds up a mirror to their lives, he remained in obscurity and had to witness the rise of Gallagher, whose main deal was hitting watermelons with a sledgehammer on stage. But I don't hold Klein to account or render any responsibility unto him purely because he was a chode when he wrote the book. But Stephen, when he made the film, was sitting on more than 45 years worth of experience at not only astonishing sci-fi and adventure, but hard-hitting films that we've seen throughout this year, which hone in on historical societal evils like slavery, racism, abuse, the absolute importance of an integrity-driven media, the horrendous toll of nationalism taken to its fatal final extent, the horrors of war from the perspective of soldiers and civilians, horses, spies, and children, our over and under response to crime, terrorism, and chaos, and the scientific and moral irresponsibility of creating artificial life and dinosaurs. Stephen, I do hold to account for not making the lines of what's really going on here clearer. And while the film was enjoyable at the cinema, it has proved frustrating to rewatch for me. Purely because this man, as we have established over the course of 2020, like no one's ever said it before, is a cinematic wizard and was capable of saying something far more profound than, hey son, put down the gamey boy and go outside once in a while. Maybe get yourself a girlfriend. We're trying. Lord knows. But School of Movies is kept alive by a group of wonderful people who support us through the good times and the bad. And these folks know that we're saying more than Gallagher. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downey, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Scott Jacob, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, Tom Painter, and Valencia Burns.
everyone. This is Victoria from the future. Uh, due to the unfortunate circumstances of the original record in 2019, Alex was kind enough to let me kind of wrap up something that I was saying uh, here now in, in 2020. I mainly just would like to say that like, I do agree with Alex on a lot of the points that this movie could have been so much more, and especially positioning it in the Spielberg uh, season, there's a lot that can be said about the naivety of the director and things that Alex is definitely much more qualified to say. But for me, the movie, I, I ended up pulling a lot more out of it textually than, than most individuals, but I want to make sure that something is clear. I don't necessarily agree with the themes of this movie. The In the end, it's trying to take some really bad source material and make something out of it. But the message that it's trying to convey is that all those video games and all of that media stuff that you tie up your whole life in, which we know can be a problem, right? Uh, orthodox gamers and all. But saying, well, that's going to prevent you from making any kind of meaningful real-life relationships. And I think that's just demonstrably untrue and kind of odious to position in that way. So many of us end up having rich relationships with individuals strictly through games, strictly through our love of media. I mean, that's why we're all here, right? Like, I wouldn't be on this show semi-regularly if I didn't have something to say about Iron Man 3 back in the day, or if I didn't have something to contribute to the old Watchmen episode back in the day. And uh, far be it from me to, like, be weird about how people tie their identities to media. I mean, my I have a sleeve of tattoos that are all Destiny-themed. But I think the movie's trying to say that, but it goes into that naivety, I think. That it's, it's ignoring the nuance of relationships and how real relationships are that are online, that are through these other means. And in the end, especially watching it again here in 2020... That last moment talking about how, you know, in reality, like, sure, reality is the only place you can get a good sandwich, but the idea of, like, the only thing that's real is reality or, or that, that final line hits so much worse uh, today because your experiences are real. The friends you make online, the people that you bond with, whether they're down the street or across the ocean are real relationships and I, I didn't I just didn't want that to be lost in the uh, in the edit and the the, the time difference um, so I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I uh, yeah thank you Alex for letting me record a little something at the end always a, a great friend And thank you, Victoria. You are wise and kind. And while at the time of release, with cinema in jeopardy and very much on hold, Steven Spielberg has not yet been able to release his remake of West Side Story, 
Ready Player One would appear to be the end of our run for this season. Though we of course do plan to resume the season much like the Disney series, for as long as Steven is directing films. But I honestly would prefer to go out with a bang, so as an epilogue, we are going to go all the way back to 2011 and a film that Steve produced rather than directed. One which owes so much of itself to Amblin and the sci-fi that he brought to the young and the old in the 70s and 80s and beyond. A film we adore, but was not beloved upon release thus ideally suited to our wheelhouse. A movie which predates by many years the wildly popular and yet similarly flavoured Stranger Things. And after a year of stewing on his most recent film, The Rise of Skywalker, I'd say it's high time that we let J.J. Abrams remind us again why he is much more than simply the wannabe Steven that he's often dismissed as. We see layers more in his work beyond simple replication, and those familiar strong flavours just make everything better. Because this film really does feel like something from the past that was important is carried forward. So, get hold of Super 8 in HD and watch that, because it is how we're closing out Spielberg season for now. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. The, the, the world's biggest piece of shit T.J. Miller finds out and uses that against him, which winds up getting his house blown up. His whole little trailer stack blown up. There are mass casualties oh, in yeah. that one scene. Mm-hmm. Right, like his stepfather, I guess, also uh, goes the, up in smoke. The step-uncle or something. The it dude would, from The Witch. Right. Speaking it, of, where's oh, Black Phillip? I would, I would totally be Black Phillip if there was a case. Yes. All of these delicious <laughs> pop culture references. <laughs> yes, I'm driving a car trying to get the key. I'm a black goat. Dude, if you were doing this movie or you're watching this movie, <laughs> It's that race, and I don't know, the fucking station wagon from vacation pulls up alongside you, and it's a fucking goat driving the car. A plus, A plus movie, man. A plus. Yeah, they just did it wrong. Wouldst thou like to race deliciously? I'm heading to spring break. <laughs> but this- Awesome 80s outrageous. And we're going to play you some of Alan Silvestri's extremely fun score at the very end after this song because we couldn't close out with anything other than jump rest in peace eddie van halen you were truly excellent
And as promised, this is some of Silvestri's score. This one's Hold On To Something, which is the van chase near the end. You get some real Back To The Future vibes in here, especially near the end of the track. (laughs) 